programa. Hello and welcome to Dynamite Eddie. It's the Retro Games Podcast where a couple of our pals get together and talk about a couple of our games. The voice you're hearing just now is myself, Mick Clockerty. Joining me as always, we have Mr. Mick McCormick. How's it going? And sleepy, Mr. Andy MacArthur. Konnichiwa. <laughs> Boys, how are you getting on? Andy's been running on Japanese time, that's why he's so tired. <laughs> he's actually in the land of the rising sun as we speak. I'll basically just die. If I, if I hear snow in the next couple of hours, it's just because I'm fucking passed out, man. <laughs> Try and keep up. Don't you worry, listener, we've got some scintillating games to cover. They've been able to get put to sleep here. Unless you're listening at bedtime and then... Maybe they just drift off. Will be nice and peaceful for you. Doing my best, Matthew McConaughey impersonation. <laughs> Anybody playing anything interesting the last wee while? I have mostly been playing Chrono Cross, which makes more sense to talk about later. Uh, yes. In the program. <laughs> um, I also played a horror game, an indie horror game called Paratopic, which um, I don't know if I liked or not. I don't know Aye. if I understood it or not. There was a cool vibe about it. But I couldn't necessarily tell you what it was about by the end of it. <laughs> I'll make a note of that one. How does it function sort of gameplay-wise? It's mostly a kind of walking simulator type of game. Um, right. There's like three different perspectives that it kind of jumps between. They've all kind of got to do with these um, mysterious videotapes. It's got vibes of Videodrome a wee bit, and it's got vibes of um, Roadside Picnic or Stalker. But uh, there's three characters, one of them is walking through this kind of deserted power station landscape. One of them is um, smuggling these videotapes across a border. Videotapes that seem to fuck people's seeds up and make weird things happen. There's another person that you just see kind of driving, driving to and fro and having conversations with uh, somebody at the gas station. You're not entirely sure if these are three versions of the same person or if it's the different people at different points in time in that. Aye. And it's all got that kind of... I think it's possibly one of the first ones that kind of popularised that, like, PS1 style horror, like the kind of early fucked up looking 3D. Right, I do quite like that myself, this might gel with me. Do you know what I'm thinking? It sounds like fucking, I don't know, like Lost Highway or something, there sounds a wee bit David Lynch to it, especially I... if it's no like... A coherent narrative, do you know what I mean? If you've got to kind of put things together yourself. Yeah, it's definitely a bit abstract. I say it was creepy, but I might need to play it again to try and figure out what I actually just experienced. You'll be playing it again anyway because you're a big pervert that loves Videodrome and that. That's true. Don't be afraid <laughs> to let your body die, etc. Andy, anything yourself? Um, I had a shot of facade on night. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you dove back in to try and. No, over the years, have you got worse at facade? Because and you get chucked out of Grace and Trapsus on stream the other night. I seen you. I know. I think it was. I don't know. Was not on the ball? I think it just. I think I said melon for a laugh. <laughs> you said with life hands you melons make melonade. <laughs> We <laughs> didn't like that very much. Yeah, the trigger of the game it you if you see it. In that version of the game, I, I was watching you streaming it, and you you gave it your best shot. You tried your best with fucking Grace and Trip, but they they just ended up fucking stressing you too much by the end, as they always do. But I mean, you made an effort with them. Yeah, yeah, there's a way to do it, but I can't. I'll need to play it a couple of times again to try and remember what it is you do. But there's a way to enact it. I hate them, right? I would never hang about with Grace and Trip in real life. 
but I like sometimes visiting the surreal nightmare world because of the graphics and the way their eyes follow you about the room and the, the way it glitches out and things like that sometimes. There's just something... It's like the Red Room in Twin Peaks or something like that. I, I feel myself drawn to it. <laughs> what is it about this time of year that we're all kind of gravitating towards these Lynchian games? Aye. You barely see the sun in that. Can't miss <laughs> uh, we are in the, the land of perpetual darkness at the minute. I've been playing again. This isn't a Lynchian, but I've been fairly obsessed with a horror game. A wee indie horror. I've not kicked a ball in Baldur's Gate 3 for a couple of weeks because I've been so into this other thing. It's a horror game called Fear and Hunger. It's a wee RPG maker looking thing. You'd be tricked into just thinking that it's a, a dark fantasy JRPG. But it's this fucked up roguelike horror thing where resource management you have to delve deeper and deeper into this horrible dungeon while magical forces make you constantly be starving so you need to be constantly picking up wee things to eat and smoking and drinking and things like that to manage your sanity you do have turn-based battles like a jrpg but there's no like leveling up and things like that you have to sort of figure out how to beat each body. There's this weird limb system where you chop the limbs off and stuff. Anyway, it takes really a long time to get a good run at it. You keep dying, you keep having to restart. To save the game, there's like a coin toss. If you fail that, you're fucked. Something just shows up and kills you. <laughs> so you could get after a flying start, your first hour, pick up hunters of good weapons, food and all that, and then die instantly. It took me probably a good five hours dying 10 or 15 times before I even get a decent start in the game. But I could tell that this was probably one of the best games I've played in years because I was sitting thinking about it in my downtime. Do you know what I mean? Going, right, if I go to the dungeon, I can get to the blood pit. And if I go through the blood pit, I can look and see if I can get some supplies here. And I know how to kill the guard enemy, so that's fine. I don't know what's coming next in the mines, but I've got this and that. And I was sort of planning out wee scenarios in my head, making notes and things like that about what I was going to do in the game next and, and then trying to do it. And I think when something's got its hooks into you that much, you're you're onto a winner. Aye, it sounds a bit like that FromSoft thing where like, because it's so harsh and unforgiving, you need to dedicate your whole mind to it. That's why it basically sticks with you and has such an impact on you. Aye. I do want to play it, but I also feel like I need to be in the right headspace for it, which I'm probably not at the moment. I want something a bit more easy going right now. Aye, it's got that thing where if you take your eye off the ball, like um, God Hand or something, you'll just get your cunt kicked in. As you were saying, that, that from soft effect. You'll lose all your limbs and just have to <laughs> starve to death because you can't get food in that. It's a cunt air game. You can step on a rusty <laughs> nail and it can give you an infection, which will kill you, which will kill you instantly unless you find a green herb, which are randomly spawned and you might never get one. So you can step on a nail and then just fucking die and have to go back <laughs> to your save and restart the game. That's life. It's got all this mad, fucked up lore about it as well, like these eldritch old gods, and there's like a fucked up version of Christianity which has started in this world. It's like a Western European dark fantasy setting, but there's lots of things that are analogous to our history and our real world, but Aye. everything's all fucked up and violent and just horrible. I would say content warning, if anybody's listening and thinking, that's for me, I want to try that. One feeling of the game, there's a lot of nudity, right? Which I don't give a fuck about. They use it 
to enhance the horror. See, sometimes seeing a big grotesque monster in front of you and it's got its cock out, that makes it scarier <laughs> because, because of an uncanny effect. I don't know. But it also sometimes will portray the monsters engaging in things like sexual assault and has been criticised for, you know, maybe you know, portraying these things in a, a very sensitive way. Aye. I would say if it sounds like your jam and that's the type of thing that you might, might not make you feel the best, maybe skip it. <laughs> you say there's a sequel as well? There is, and it's meant to be even better. It's a um, sequel, was a similar thing, except it's all based on a tune, which is based on like, Prague, and this time it's set in the 1940s, and it's Battle Royale. There's 14 contestants. You can either kill each other or try to figure out what the fuck's going on. There's a mad cult and things like that. I've no touched the sequel yet, but I can tell... I'm going to get right into that as well. Apparently, it's a better entry point. Um, some people say you should play two and then play one. Kristen, I'll be something to check out when you've completely rinsed the original, which I imagine you're not quite close to yet. Well, I've been it. I've got a couple of the endings. There's a couple of endings you can only get in hard mode where you can't save and you can only use one character. I'm not going to do that. That sounds too hard. <laughs> but I've done I've done all the stuff you can do in normal mode. Let's go on to our games for this episode. Andy, we'll start with yourself. Why did you pick Toy Story? As if I need to ask, there has been a powerful Toy Story lobby working behind the scenes in this podcast, <laughs> and Andy's finally managed to get it on. But Andy, tell us why you've wanted this on the, the podcast for so long. Pixar wrote him a fucking seven-figure check. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is in my wee pile. I had this game towards the end of the Mega Drive's lifespan. It was one of the last games I got for it, but I also spent a lot of time playing it. Well, it looked amazing. I thought it was innovative at its time. Probably... I will judge that, but I thought it was it was doing things that I've never seen before. But looking back on it, I've kind of got mixed feelings on it. So I thought, fuck it, let's see what you think. And it's a Virgin Interactive game. I think it's one of the last kind of sixteen-bit uh, Virgin Interactive games. It was um, Traveller's Tale developed as well. See, there's there's a couple of wee effects in this that I was like, I've I seen that in Megamania, another late Mega Drive game. Anyway. I remember having a shot of this at somebody's house. I can't remember if it was like a cousin or like a pal or something like that. And I also remember when Toy Story fever hit the fucking country, people getting this for their birthday at school. I remember some fucking pure D-listers in primary school getting this as a birthday present. (laughs) I'll save you the bleeps, Mick. I would say... This is probably one of the more popular late Mega Drive games I can remember. Nobody really had Vector Man, but I remember quite a few people having Toy Story. I don't think you could call it a wee pile game because it wasn't around for long enough. But of like the latecomers, this is probably the most popular one I can think of. It was an no-brainer for the parents to buy the Wayne's at Christmas. Toy Story was massive. I remember there was a late burst, um, and it was consisted of Mortal Kombat Three, Comic Zone. And likes of this game. Sonic 3D Blast and that as well. Aye. Toy Story. I think I rented this game a few times because as I was playing it, I was noticing wee set pieces and things and it was taking me back. And I was like, I remember fucking how to do this level. The more I played through it, the more kind of came back to me. So I think we must have rented this once or twice as well. I remember liking it. Obviously, as you were saying, Andy, the big selling point here 
is the graphics. They look really good. Again, we're into that 3D pre-rendered sprite stuff, rather. There was there was a thing at the time, Boys Lightyear, was like, um, remember how every Christmas you get a thing where like, Wayne's just obsessive or something? Like, that Prime drink was one, and then, like, Furby's World was one, one year. Aye. Yo-yos at some point. The Power Rangers saw Power Rangers, aye, and you couldn't get it. Buzz Lightyear became that kind of zeitgeist thing. And I remember there'd been a bit of an outcry in a magazine because you couldn't go buzz, essentially. Well, that's usually a thing. There's usually a news article which will give you a rundown of what the best-selling toy is that Christmas. And I think they still do that to this day. On the graphics front, I think Pixar shared a lot of their renders and stuff with Traveller's Tales. So that's why it all looks like the proper stuff. Okay. It looks a bore hair off being like an early PlayStation game. I don't love the graphics myself, but it looks like Toy Story. It looks apart, and I find them like technically impressive, if that makes sense. There's a lot of that kind of technique we talked about last time with Donkey Kong, didn't they? Um, where it looks kind of washed out, but it's retains all this kind of, as you said, PlayStation-y stuff. I, I don't, I, I didn't, apologies, I didn't get the chance to look into this as much as I could have. The Sega Mega Drive version scored better than the SNES one because when they pre-rendered it, basically the developers for the Mega Drive one, the team behind that or whatever, found a way to better skirt around that and make the colours kind of pop more, whereas the SNES one looks a wee bit more washed out, apparently. I, I think your man, John Burton, who's, um, he's got that YouTube channel that I've talked about a few times where he kind of talks about the, the background of Traveller's Tales games and how he programs certain things. Like, I Aye. think at this point he'd gotten quite used to doing um, games on the Mega Drive and he knew how to get the most out of it. He did the, the Moose on Mickey Mania and all that. I've seen that. A, famous a, Moose. It's a good channel. This can maybe tie back into would it have been better with Buzz as a playable character. I don't think the gameplay in this is much to write home about. In terms of Woody's control, he's not the best character I've ever had a shot at. The jump feels alright, no amazing, and his wee drawstring whip attacking just feels a wee bit limited. Doesn't it feel bad, but it doesn't feel like, really good either. Reminding me of Castlevania's attack, you wee kind of upwards whip. I feel like you get a, to go to the satisfying crunch that you're fond of talking about, I think with the Castlevania whip, you get a satisfying chop, a watcha. whereas Woody just does a daft wee kind of wanking motion with his horn, and this pathetic wee <laughs> whip thing comes out. It's a bit of a dilemma, because fucking Woody's the protagonist of the film. The story Aye. doesn't really make sense if you're following Buzz. But at the same time, I do remember this was one where kids were like, here, by the way, there's a cheat. There's a cheat way. You can go buzzing that. <laughs> like, obviously, there wasn't. I think there is a Toy Story 2 game for the PlayStation, which is considered a wee bit of a hidden gem where you day play as Buzz. There is. I had it, and I'm pretty sure that was a direct like feedback because it was the same folk <laughs> that made it, and it would have been a direct response to the first one for all the complaints. I remember it being what, bitterly disappointing because, uh, in the case... It features buzz predominantly. It's like, <laughs> it's buzz heavy, the case, you know what I mean? Like, buzz is at the front, pulling his, uh, is it, Universe Protection Protectorate unit face and all that, and <laughs> Woody's kind of holding on, like, oh, you, this is my game, mate, back. And... I felt it natural that you would play as Woody. I've got to admit, it never even crossed my mind while I was playing this that, oh, you should be able to play as Buzz Lightyear in this because he's not the protagonist of the film. 
maybe it's a kind of meta commentary. You're meant to feel That's like Andy. Like. You're meant to feel like Andy for Toy Story being gutted that he's only got uh, Woody and he really wants Buzz. I like to think that aye, something like that. It was it was meant to be a Buzz game, but Woody hijacked. Like, it's Toy Story. A, to, like a Toy Story episode. Woody's went into the studio and hijacked it, so it's him that's the main guy. He's just kind of made mini games and the rest of the, the levels to kind of iron out the buzz bits. <laughs> what I do like about this game, as I said, the controls, not the gameplay, I should say the controls, left me a wee bit, I, I thought they were alright. What I liked a lot about this was the variety in the levels. You are rarely doing the same thing level to level. Aye. It's rarely A to B platforming. You'll usually have some wee objective, like getting the toys back in the toy box, getting the army men out, things like that. It became a bit Peter Gabriel where Genesis done it. Well, I didn't know what the fuck it was. It just it started off as a platformer and you thought, oh, this is going to be a platformer with some puzzles in it. And then it just branches off into this kind of conglomeration of things. It's more like, why not? Do you know what I mean? You get there's a tap down racing bit. There's a mad wee like pseudo self stealth section. There's a fucking Doom clone, a first person <laughs> fucking thing that looks like Doom a wee bit. Aye, <laughs> just loads of wee things like that. If the controls felt limited, the level design itself basically never did. There were just constant wee flourishes of like creativity. It really felt like they didn't give a fuck. That Doom level you're talking about is fucking pretty impressive, man, that they managed to keep the frame rate. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't... I, I was playing that earlier today. I was, like, doing my homework the night before, basically. I was sitting playing that on the couch about an hour ago, and I was thinking that myself. That was just a victory lap for Traveller's Tales. Like, look what we can fucking do. But he's going to do this. Aye. I've got to admit, I always like with something like this when you can tell there was a wee bit of extra effort put in. Like, this was a cash-in game for probably the biggest kids' film of the decade. Mick, as you said, this was going to fly off the shelves. Wayne's loved Toy Story. They'll buy them the game for Christmas. People didn't check whether to see... As if your mom and dad were looking at game reviews, do you know what I mean? They would just buy you the thing. Aye, this man has covered the whole war in whatever he's... Aye. uh, Whatever the woman wants, I believe the official name of the show. So they, they could have half-arsed this and still made a fortune, Aye. but they didn't. They tried to make something cool, and they mostly like succeeded in that. So I have to say, fair fucks to Traveller's Tales on this. One thing there is, isn't it? there's... <sighs> you know how everybody knows I said? Right, let's divert a wee bit, because I've, I've no needed that long to talk about it, the game itself, in case you couldn't notice, but to talk about the actual film, right... Sid is quite a fucked up character in that, like, they were like, all right, I'm sentient toys, this is going to be a, a slam dunk, Wayne's will love us, design Woody, Buzz, all these iconic characters, and it can be a bit of a toy advert, we can put the Mr. Potato Head in that in it. And then they thought, do you know what this film needs? Mengala for toys. Genetic engineering. <laughs> <laughs> but see, if toys weren't sentient, then Sid wouldn't be a bad guy. Sid is just a creative kid having fun with his toys in an unorthodox way. How is he supposed to know? How is he supposed to know that they've got fucking minds and consciousnesses? And then when they reveal it at the end, that fucks this child up for life. Does he not like, get his sister's favourite doll and go and do an operation on it and then get it back with like, a fucking pterodactyl one that's he done? He's like a nine or ten year old boy. But were you very nice to your wee sister at that age? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I would have thought that was pure funny. The only reason I wouldn't have done that is because I would have been scared of getting into trouble. The only thing that kind of concerned me, it, it would have been on a terrorist watch list when they tried to buy that huge firework. <laughs> fucking about his back, you know. Um, I think that Woody and Boys would have been at least these worries, man. I think they might have fucking MI5 Homeland Security. Is it like uh, the DEA or no? Who's who's the ones that raided ATF? Aye, the ones that raided uh, Waco. <laughs> Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. <laughs> He's one of them characters that everybody like, associated with him as an arsehole. Even his dog was a bit of an arsehole to everything. I don't like the implications of Toy Story. I don't like these sentient toys in your room looking at you like that's where like your dirty pants and that oh that's where you get ch- that's where you get changed and things like that. But what, what, what are they doing? I don't. Let's let's be honest, man. Andy was a bit of a fucking wet wipe. He was obviously listening to Backstreet Boys and Sid's probably listening to Alice in Chains and all that shit. Right? <laughs> Aye, Andy's going to hold on to their toys for a long time. I think it probably shows you that in one of their sequels. Well, like, he's going to uni and that, and his mum's like. Can I take Woody away, yeah? So Woody's definitely seen him have a wank because he's <laughs> he's never known he's never known how Woody by like his bedside. <laughs> Somebody on Twitter pointed out that if one of the toys actually died, then like, the kids would never know. Like um, Andy would never know, and he just did corpse, while the other ones would be horrified. What's that? And Porter guys just is presented as like the most horrible thing ever when your toy becomes sentient. Aye. All of a sudden it's alright, funny <laughs> voices. <laughs> I don't like it, although I was probably too old by the time this came out that my mind had been closed off to the possibility that it could be true. I think my wee bra probably thought, like, maybe, that maybe your toys day come to life when you leave a room, but I never really had that thought. I was just worried about the PTSD that my G.I. Joes must have had. <laughs> Some of the missions they went on, man. Andy, while we're on the subject, because I know you'll kick yourself if we don't mention this before we move on, because you talk about it a lot, tell us why you find Evil Buzz such like a an intriguing part of this game. You really like Evil Buzz. I'm going to play my Johnny Branchfield card now. Huge fucking sprite. Buzz is just something that kind of summed up the mid-90s, man. Cool as fuck. An evil buzz is even cool, aren't me, man? And it's kind of presented in that dream scenario. You mentioned Twin Peaks earlier, well, here we go. <laughs> Twin Peaks buzz. A couple of levels into a game, you get to the first boss, I think, and it's a an evil version of Buzz Lightyear where his powers are real. He actually can fly and shoot lasers and things like that at you. So you need to dodge that and whip him with the correct timing. Once he's about to, I don't know, teleport or something, you whip him in the head. I can't remember. I, 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 I quite like him. I, I think what I like about him is I've looked at him and I just kind of fantasised about playing as him. Aye. And it made me like him even more. And I was like, oh, I was like man, imagine you went him. Imagine you were him. Imagine it was like the evil buzz of the game. I did a wee bit of digging on Evil Buzz, as I was telling you in the chat, and it turns out that that was in the film. At least some draft of the film had a dream sequence where Woody had a nightmare, and Buzz really did have all these powers, and he came to life, you know, and he was fucking with him, type thing. The film, the full film wasn't out, so they would have had access to, like, scenes and stills and an outline for Pixar, and in the outline that Traveller's Tales got, Evil Buzz was probably in it. And they thought, 
this would make a good boss level. Is so I dark goal for GTA three scenario. Well, you've got a Toy Story deleted scene as a level in this, which I think is pretty cool. If you're a big Toy Story head, magic man. And that's my best bit about this game for me. My favourite bit was always Peace Up on it, and that goes for the game and the film. You probably also wished that, that Pizza Planet was real. Well, this is it, man. McCormick will remember this, because we used to go all the time. There was this place in, um, for birthdays and all that. You probably remember today, quarterly. In fact, I know for a fact you will, because it was the same for every... You're going to say Clyde Bank in a zap zone, right? <laughs> and I'll tell you, I was never invited to a zap zone birthday party oh, no. I never no. I never got the zap zone experience so fuckies that's why I hate Buzz Lightyear <laughs> that's why you hate us but uh, no the zap zone changed my life and uh, just oh here that could be an, that could be an episode title there man a, I felt a lightning bolt hit my brain <laughs> it was uh, you walked in and it was this place where it had like, just games everywhere like it was a arcade and it had like Mad themes and music and like just arcade tunes and and then we went over and there was like a thing we went laser shooting and all that and it was just all a laser tag. Aye, it was all engineered to just give a ten-year-old boy the day of his life. The food wasn't as good as it would have been in Pizza Planet because I'm pretty sure it was a wimpy. Wimpy, that's right. <laughs> aye, it was a wimpy. That's right. Fucking aye, I didn't think it was up to much, but I was too like excited to eat. But by fuck, it changed my life that place. And uh, I loved it. And this and Toy Story reminded me of that. So being able to play this level reminded me of being there. Best place in fucking Clyde Bank. Best place in the world. Best place in Clyde Bank. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you, uh, and big I, boat that's got a chippy inside it. And I recently checked uh, what happened to his app zone. It's became a fucking mountain warehouse. <laughs> it's just such a gutter. The press is a life out of you, man. Look what, they've, look what they've done to us. Well, look how they massacre my boy. So you've not got beaties anymore. No. You've not got the zap zone. The pictures are still there. And I think the chip boat's still there. But Clyde Banks losing a lot of its vital industry. It used to be a real country. <laughs> exactly. If you don't want to ship you there or something, man. Uh, that's an idea, aye. It's far too late for that. In terms of recommendations, I don't really feel the need to recommend it or no recommend it. It's a Toy Story game. If you you had the Sega, you probably remember it in that. If you're a big platformer he'd, and you don't, get a go. Otherwise, it's Toy Story for a Sega. Do you know what I mean? But anyway, moving on. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll go on to our next game, which is Radical Dreamers. This is a game that I've chosen for Mr. McCormick. Just right out of that, emulation era that we talk about you know you had your first hurrah with the the mega drive the playstation the n64 and then sort of maybe more and more teams spending more time on the internet you started playing all these roms and things that you missed back in the day your chrono triggers your final fantasy sixes and this was something that i played back then the first time a fan translation came out for this was in 2003 for some reason i didn't know that Chrono Cross existed, weirdly, but I knew about Radical Dreamers, which they kind of used as source material for Chrono Cross. I thought a weird wee visual novel that they brought out on basically like the first game and streaming service, maybe. I think it's maybe greater than the sum of its parts. I think there's some cool stuff in here, and 
it might not be the greatest time of your life, but it warrants maybe some discussion. So how did you get on with it? I think the first thing I need to pick up on is that thing you said about this being part of the first game in streaming service, because this is like pretty interesting. I didn't really know much about it until I started researching for this. Basically, Nintendo, they'd found this satellite tele company in Japan that was struggling, and they bought them out, because at that point, Nintendo were richer than God. Um, and they bought out this um, satellite company, and they figured out a way to basically send games via satellite to your SNES. So you would buy a wee periphery thing that you would plug into your SNES, that would plug into a, um, a cable that would go to a satellite dish, which you rented for Nintendo, and then you could basically beam games. Um, and they were all exclusive games, like, um, that you couldn't get anywhere else. And you kind of... It, it would cycle around to be different ones available each each month. Aye. And, and some of these have become, like, interesting for historical reasons. Like, the, there is a remake of the original Legend of Zelda yeah. on the SNES that was only available on this fucking thing. Aye. We still like and, like, look out for today. What is this... Um, console for those who are uninitiated because I'm struggling to think about what I picture in my head. So it's called a Satellaview. It's a peripheral that you plug into your SNES and how it worked was basically you would put this thing in, connect it up to a satellite dish and then you would put a cartridge in um, to your SNES and it was called uh, BSX The City With No Name and that was kind of a game in itself. So you would plug in this game and you'd be walking about a wee tune um, and that's kind of the interface for the game. It, it looks a lot like Earthbound, actually. It's pretty cool. Ah. It's like a wee town, um, and there's different buildings. In each of the different buildings, you could do something different that involved connecting to this service, this online service. So like, you would go into one building, and somebody maybe gave you like, a paper. You'd read the news. You could like, like, get like, teletext on, which you could read the news. You could read about the sport, <laughs> uh, the weather, and all that stuff. That like a Sega channel. That thing yeah. with the cable TV thing. Aye. Aye, so pretty much, yeah, but um, I, I think Sega Channel was slightly earlier, but this that went over cable, um, like cable telly, as opposed to this, which was satellite. That was oh, America, America only as well. This was um, Japan only, Europe, I believe, was fucked for both of them. So yeah, you could, you could do that, and you could download games onto these wee, kind of like an SD card, like a rewritable card that you would slot into the top. And then, as I said, there was only a few of them available each, each month, and you could kind of store them. They also did this weird thing, and I don't, I can't even envision how this worked. But like, there was like live streamed games. I don't know. Imagine they're maybe like visual novels or something. But they had voice acting. In the voice acting, you had like Japanese tele actors, and it was like it was live. It was like beamed to you live over the satellite while the game was going on. So is this like? Um, so when you say that it's beamed live, is this like a an atmosphere kind of thing where they play a video? And you interact through like doing your own thing outside the the video feed, or is it an actual immersive thing? This is the part that I I, I don't really understand. Mo- most of the games, including the game I was talking about, is basically like you're on Steam or something. You download the game, you save it, and then you can play it whenever you want. These games, I I can't even envision how they work because there's not even any footage of them online or anything. Like, but I imagine it's like a visual novel, but at the same time, somebody's gaining your audio, gaining your like, kind of dramatic readings of it. It wasn't a video, they couldn't do a video at the time, but it was it was like radio, like a radio play or something. And you could listen to music and stuff as well over the satellite. Hunter some mad features. During this coming out, Squaresoft, they gave 
Mitsuda shout, they gave some guys for the Chrono Trigger team a shout and said, do you want to try and make a Chrono thing for this in like three months? And rather than saying, no, get a fuck, they were so into it and they felt that there was unresolved stuff in the story of Chrono Trigger that they said, aye. And they basically made this wee visual novel slash adventure game thing called uh, Radical Dreamers, which sort of one of the great unanswered questions for Chrono Trigger is what happens. And I'm going to pronounce a name. I don't know if we, we landed anywhere on this uh, in the <laughs> Chrono Trigger episode, but Shala or Scala, uh, Magus's sister or Magus's sister. <laughs> we need to settle on one for both of these, right? <laughs> you never find out what happens to her and she's quite an important character. And I think that was also the impetus for making Chrono Cross eventually. They did settle on an answer for that in Chrono Cross as well. But this wee visual novel sets about to answer that. Even though for the outset, it kind of seems as if it's not really a book anything like that. There's nothing really to connect it to Chrono Trigger from your, your opening passages. Right, so I'm, I'm going to kind of get into this lore later on after I explain what this is because I'm still slightly unclear on whether or not it, it does answer these questions or not, but um, the way I played this was basically, it was a, they've, they've re-released it, retranslated it, um, and packed it in with Chrono Cross, which you can download on Steam. So I, I played that version, Mick played the fan translation and, you know, I'm not 100% sure how well, they're going to align with each other. I, I I played this version, and it is, as Mick said, um, a kind of visual novel, text-based game, but there is music and there is visuals to accompany it. So it starts off, you're playing, um, is this wee guy called Serge, and he says he was wandering about the world, a bit directionless, didn't really know what he did. He was making money um, playing music in pubs, like a bard. And, and he encounters this lassie called Kid, and um, Kid's a thief. And he becomes, I think he kind of falls, he falls for a kid a bit, but he also decides that he's going to follow her about um, and they're going to be thieves together. Um, the two of them are accompanied by this mysterious wizard called Majil, or Majil, another fucking um, ambiguous <laughs> pronunciation, I'm sorry. This is a fella that's kind of tall, mysterious, pale skin, long blue hair, He's fucking mages for Chrono Trigger, right? You look at him, you'll tell within the first 30 seconds if you've played Chrono Trigger, this is mages. But it doesn't tell you that. Um, and it doesn't necessarily tell you that throughout the course of the game either. But it is, but it is. Behind the scenes, he spent some time working in Port Glasgow and converted to Catholicism right. and took on the name McGill rather than... <laughs> <laughs> yes, felt solidarity with the struggle of the Irish people for freedom. Aye. Um, so yeah, he's kind of a mentor and guardian to Kid, but Kid is wanting to steal this artifact called the Frozen Flame, which is meant to be able to change uh, fate, and it's uh, also worth loads of money, which is why she's interested in it, because she's a thief, and she wants to get revenge on this fella called Lynx, um, for reasons you find out later. So they're all uh, just about to arrive to Lynx's manor under cover of darkness, trying to steal this gem. So how this plays out is, interestingly, almost identical like a Dungeons & Dragons dungeon adventure that you might have, if you've ever played it in real life, like it plays out very much like, like that, a pretty bog-standard dungeon where you've got monsters, you've got puzzles to solve, a wee kind of dungeon to go through different sections of the dungeon, unlocking different bits, revisiting bits, things like that. 
So, kind of not really what I expected. I was expecting something more narratively driven, where you kind of go through like a straightforward narrative and you might have some choices. But there's mechanics going on behind the scenes, like an old school text adventure or like your old playing game. But the way it's presented to you is, is purely through text, which I thought was quite unusual. One of the big diversions from... I don't know if there is another text adventure that does this. There's random encounters and random battles in this, which a lot of reviews, contemporary and retrospective, kind of say that they don't work. I think that they can work, but I think that there's they weren't properly utilised or something. There's a difference between like death by random encounter and having random encounters. Well, that's Sky's guys Arcadia game in Final Fantasy VI to an extent. It was just overkill at times, but... They, they don't overdo it, but I played through this game... I've taken a couple of cracks at it over the last couple of weeks, and then last night, I probably made my way about halfway through it with my notes, and then I thought, I want to see the end, and I'll just use a walkthrough to get to the end um, so I can see it. Sorry, put my hands up. I probably only did about four random encounters and through the whole playthrough. Um, they don't happen that often. And for me, I thought that they were constantly dice rolling to see whether something you did was successful or sometimes it would fail. Because some of them, they do that. You know, when you're fighting certain enemies, if you try to attack them, then it might succeed or it might fail. But for the random encounters, there is actually a way that always works. Like, I kept fighting goblins, and the way to do it was to throw a dagger at one of their heads, get behind them, and grab his mace, and that always won. So it took a wee bit of the threat out of the game, because the random encounters I happened to get kept being this goblin, and I already knew a solution to it. So it kind of took that element of danger out of it for me. Aye, you kind of can treat them like RPG battles where you try to deal with like mechanics and like probabilities and things like that. The narrative kind of gives you a clue on what you're meant to do most of the time. Like the most obvious example of that is like you get three, you fight the dogs at the start and you give them three choices. Should you fight them? Should you run away? Or should you use magic? And you click use magic and you say, well, I don't know any magic. And then you get hurt. Aye. So... Yeah, there's a, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer most of the time. Or like, somebody's running up at you with a sword and it's a massive big sword. Are you going to try and parry it? Or are you going to duck under and stab them? Well, you've only got a wee dagger, so it doesn't really make sense and you, you get hurt if you try and parry them. So can I play it like that? You've got to maybe reset your expectations of what these things are. To go back to what you were saying about this feeling a wee bit like you're sitting at a tabletop and Aye. there's a dungeon master explaining this to you, I liked the way that the battles were written. It wasn't just attack, six damage, enemy attacks, 12 damage. It would be like, you get your back against the wall, this creature fucking smashes a morning star into it, you feel cement, gravel fall into your Aye. hair kid stabs somebody behind you, you hear it shriek out with pain, it sort of gives you this big explanation of the whole set piece, and then after it, like, the characters actually seem hurt, like, you're fucked, you sit and you bandage up your wounds and that, and you're like, don't know how many more of these I can do, which if you fought five goblins, would be the fucking case. See, those are the best bits of PGs for me, because that's where all the exposition of the story comes, after you've cleared that dungeon, just before you go back to a town, he's all sitting with a campfire all bust to fuck, cleaning up <laughs> each other's wounds, and then he's all talking about each other's lore and life and that. All them bits. You're going to different rooms, you're kind of solving puzzles, like you find kind of keys that can open up other places, or like somebody will tell you a hint, 
um, on how to get to another place that you'll get this like prisoner um, in the dungeon that you talk to and he gives you a bit of lore about what Lynx is all about and why he's, why he's trapped there and he Aye. tells you how to get to his secret lair there's a wee goblin who is like his guards Lynx the baddies guards are uh, all goblins and he's a goblin that used to work for uh, the old guy that, that owned the castle and um, he get kicked out so this goblin you initially thinks a baddie and he's just like no I, I want Lynx gone as, as much as you do He's just sitting drinking cups of tea, reading paperbacks. And the translation I played, he was called Esmeld, and he was my favourite character. Kind of mind what he was called. I don't think it was Esmeld, but it was something along those lines. Um, but he was going, he, like, you, you try and threaten him, like, all right, fucking tell us where your boss is and that. And he's just like, oh, let me finish my tea first. Like, he, he's, not, he's clearly not phased by you at all. Take the opportunity to drink his tea because it heals your hit points, which is another thing I like about this is that you can't see how much health you've got, but in the background, there is an invisible health counter. So rather than the old choose-your-own-adventure novels, which I don't know how much... I, I know McCormick has a, a bit of a history with them. Rather than keeping your finger in a page in case you fucking turn to the next page and plummet to your death because you've picked the wrong option, that doesn't happen in this. What will happen is you'll get hurt and you can turn around and go back to make the choice again. But if you lose too much health, then you'll die. There's mm. no instant deaths in it, as far as I can tell. There are also opportunities to get healed. Yeah, and it's all, again, communicated to you through the narrative. Like, you don't have a health bar. You talk to um, Agile, and he'll be like, yeah, by the way, you're looking a bit banged up. Just be careful out there. Um, and like, after the battles and stuff, it's like, oh, I'm feeling great. Or like, oh, I'm feeling pretty rough. Like, it doesn't, it, it's never communicate to you in a, in a number which is quite cool yeah as I said it plays out like a D&D campaign there was a tweet um, a, a while back where somebody's saying oh I'm a dungeon master I'm about to write a new adventure for my players let me just crack open my copy of fun puzzles for four year olds like I feel like the, um, it kind of gets that aspect um, of D&D where like you know it doesn't actually use your noggin too much but you do kind of feel like clever that you understand where you've got to go next aye like, um, or something there's a message written on the wall in blood that says the day this so that's kind of that kind of sounds like that thing over there let's go back to that room you know that sort of thing that's as much kind of challenge as you're as you're really expected to to use your brain and in this version of the game again i'm not sure if this is a function of the new translation or if it was in the original but when you're walking through the dungeon, like that, your first go around, it's just like you see a door on your left, you see stairs on your right, you want to go left, you want to go right. But then as you've been in particular rooms, then that same dialogue will be like, do you want to go right towards the study or do you want to go down the stairs towards the atrium? That's in it, that's, that's in it for the start. Aye, it'll yeah. be like, go go right along the corridor to Riddell's room and Lynx's room or left to the atrium. Aye, once you've discovered a place... It tells you on the the choices. Yeah, so that helped me navigate things. And as I said, like I'm quite a, a visual person when it comes to these kind of navigating dungeons and that. I don't really go on with those first person views where you're really limited in text as well. Like playing the Hobbit, I get fucking lost in the Misty Mountains and all these other places. So having just that wee element there, where it's like, yep, this is to your left, this is to your right, that kind of really helped me figure the whole thing out and navigate easy enough. I think Lynx's mansion is actually kind of deceptively small. Yeah. I never get lost. I kind of always remembered where things were. There's an upstairs and there's a downstairs, and you either walk past the courtyard and go to this other bit where 
I never found myself going, oh, fuck, where was the dungeons again? I just always kind of remembered. Yeah. The writing in general in this game is really good, especially in the, in the version I've played. Um, you kind of have this good rapport um, between the, the three characters, like kids always winding you up, like um, Serge is a bit of a coward with a heart of gold. Uh, Majel's always fucking mysterious and inscrutable, but he's got a bit of a sense of humour as well. He kind of winds you up sometimes as well. Aye. Kind of banter between the three of them is, is quite good. And like the, some of the descriptions of things, the way it kind of words things is, is pretty, um, yeah, it's, it's really well written. Much better than I basically expect to a Square game, to be honest. Like, I don't know who they got in to do it, whether it was like some interns or some new staff that wanted to like flex their writing muscles um, to do the translation, but they did really well at it. This depressed me when I thought about it, right? I'm going to be honest with you, it depressed me. They had three months to bring out something on a satellite dish gaming system Aye. that probably Nacon was going to play. Basically, a wee bit of Chrono Trigger fan service. They don't try with things like that now. Your fan service amounts to probably paying $9.99 to be able to download a skin to make the main character in Aye. Final Fantasy sixteen have Chrono's hairdo or something like that. <laughs> this, for something that didn't really matter, they really tried again i'm going back to to effort and putting your heart into things it's a fucking quality wee product for kind of a throwaway thing almost a disposable thing aye square enix in particular like i've i feel like they've for me anyway they've expended a lot of their good faith and i feel like they are just trying to get money out here a lot of the time now like these remasters and remakes and stuff so fucking expensive for what they are i'll get into it in a minute but this one in particular pissed me off for one reason, it's all your DLC and microtransactions and stuff like it's more so than other companies. You feel that they really are just in it for the money in a lot of these ways, and that they're kind of expending the, the sort of willingness of Final Fantasy fans to keep throwing money at them. But yeah, so I, as I say, you're you're going through this dungeon, solving puzzles. You're um, eventually get to confrontation with with links, um, and at this point, it's kind of revealed that your character kid is Shala, um, but it has been the whole time. And basically, yes. after the events of Chrono Trigger, she was kind of lost in between universes, space and times, and her soul was sort of transported Aye. Into, the, into the body of Kid. And Kid ends up um, actually being looked after by Luca, uh, as a, her adopted mum. So the version I played, she's between time somehow or whatever, Aye. and she's she's feeling all this anguish because it's her fault. Like the downfall of Zeal is kind of on her because she gets like coerced into summoning Lavos or whatever, and she doesn't get put into a, a body that's already there. She gets turned into a baby Aye. and brought to the current era, so it is still her, but the, the frozen flame turns her into a Wayne, and then leaves her basically on a doorstep, and then Luca finds her. I also had a wee throwaway line about that Luca asked her to get the frozen flame and bury it at her pal's grave, and I figured that was Chrono. Yeah, but that's not really that's not really explained either. I just read that into it. Does it actually explain in your translation? Does it say Majel is Magus, or does it is that just implied? Because the way I see that, it, it didn't even it just very lightly implied that that's why. He's caring for her. I kind of put two and two together, but he never at one point said, yes, my name's Magus, that's why I'm here. It didn't spell it out in my translation either. It didn't say, I that's him. He's looking out for his sister. That's why he's always hanging about with this random wee lassie that like goes on a rob. 
it basically just hinted at it. So you wouldn't fucking understand this if you hadn't played Chrono Trigger. Yeah. Like, it had to kind of balance it a wee bit where like it's a, it's a self-contained story but it's got kind of allusions um, to these things as well I mean the whole thing kind of works as a story I would say again in the version I played it works as a standalone sort of Aye. thing well I mean I, I'm into it because you're robbing an evil aristocrat and you you kind of want to kill him as well so I was sold aye I'm into it so if you're me that's where the game ends and I say if you're me because I got fucked over um, by this game First time I played it, it was completely my fault, right? I didn't realise it was a save feature. I thought it auto-saved. And um, I'd heard that there was multiple endings. So as soon as I finished the game, I quit the game, went to bed, woke up the next day, tried to play it, and I'm playing it for the beginning again. Um, so I completed it twice uh, on the main storyline. Then I did save it at the end. I saved it at the start of what they call New Game Plus, where you can see all the additional endings. And I turned um, the Steam Deck off for a different reason, put it back on, and I'm back to the fucking start again. If you actually play this game properly and you know what you're doing, you get access to this mode, New Game Plus, where the story goes in some, frankly, fucking mental directions. Um, there is, I think, like six to eight endings of the game that you can achieve um, in this mode, whereas in the first one, there's only really a good and a bad ending. A lot of these are just kind of joke endings, really, like weird fucking weird scenarios. There's a, a whole thing where you get in, like a big magical battle with this perfect sunflower creature. It's a mandrake. That was like um, Chrono Trigger. Hunters of the Endings were weird jokes as well. Well, if you didn't kill the dinosaur queen before you beat Lavos, it showed you a first scene in the game, but Chrono and his mom were lizards and things <laughs> like that. Like, I, I, they've got kind of previous for it. Yeah, I think the structure is actually very similar because I'm, I'm not right in thinking that, like, you, you can beat Lavos early in the game uh, on, the, on your first run-through, or at least it's very, very difficult to. Unless you were some kind of mad, crazy, like, hacker. You wouldn't be able to do it, no. Aye, so it's, it's similar in, in that way. Um, so, yeah, there's another one where... Maggio was not revealed to be Magus at all, but he's just a um, this fella called Gilbert, Magic Gilbert. And he, <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he was like um, childhood friends with uh, Riddell, um, Blinks' daughter, and um, they, they realised they'd love each other and they go off and get married. He went on Penn and Teller for us. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I won't go into the details of all the, the, the endings. Um, there's two that I found quite interesting. One of them... The game turns into something of a ghost story. Um, you meet this ghost near the start, and this I found quite interesting because the game goes in the pretty much the same direction with the same plot beats as the the first run through the game. It doesn't diverge completely. You're still doing the same things, but this ghost has this kind of creepy influence and in sort of haunts because she's haunting this world. Things start happening that you don't expect to happen. Like, you'll be walking through where the terrace was at the entrance, and there's no terrace there, and you'll be like, I'm pretty sure there was a terrace there a minute ago. Like, we're stuck. We're stuck in the place. And then when you get to Lynx's room, which is unoccupied apart from that creepy statue in the original game, Lynx is just dead. Lynx's corpse is lying on the ground, fucking rotting to death. So that's quite good. It's good horror, because if you're familiar with this game, it kind of turns your expectations on its head. Aye. There's another ending, which uh, was my favourite, which is just completely fucking batshit mental, where if you go to the library and you look at one of the paintings, um, Magil realises that it's a painting of Mars, 
and he realizes that he's a member of an organization called the Space Police. Um, and he's been sent <laughs> out to defeat an evil octopus for Mars. And then at this point, the game basically breaks the fourth wall completely. Like everyone starts making jokes about um, how hacky the plot is and stuff like that. They start talking about pop culture references that they would never know about. Um, and the bit where you, you meet the fake frozen flame that he talks about, you can see a cameraman in the background and it's a, the frozen flame's a really shite prop in that. And then at the end, yeah, it just becomes a sci-fi battle with a giant octopus, which I think in the Japanese version is a send-up of like a Super Sentai um, sort of series. Like you can see he's dressed in like a mad spandex outfit. But in the version I played, they just take an opportunity to just cram in loads of fucking fourth wall breaking jokes. And um, they have Majil playing the guitar solo for Stairway to Heaven and all the song links <laughs> and that is fucking insane. I thought I was going to find out a bit more about like Chrono Trigger lore and how it connects with Chrono Triggers through these other endings, but what you just find is like um, them just having a laugh and um, taking the piss most of the time. Also, like Luca finds Shala as a baby, right, and then presumably like raises her. You get a wee tidbit about like that there was an orphanage that they lived in that get burnt down or something like that. So yeah. maybe she took in some waifs and strays and that, but she was powerful enough to fight. Like this cosmic fucking great old one with Chrono and that, and kill it, and then died against like a normal army, like an aristocrat and that. Was it because she was like an old woman or? Yeah, no, she didn't strike me as particularly maternal uh, in Chrono Trigger either. Like she was quite independent and a bit kind of tomboyish as well, but maybe she settled in a bit. She never wanted a Wayne because she had the robot. That was like her baby. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that was a bit of a, a weird development. Like, taking this through to, to Chrono Cross, like, I've been playing Chrono Cross. Um, you play as Serge again. Doesn't really look anything like the Serge in this game. Um, the whole kind of driving incident of the plot is that he um, gets transported to another dimension where he died as a child. So he's in this other dimension where nobody knows him. Um, and then he meets up with Kid, um, and Kid asks him to join the, the Radical Dreamers, the Band of Thieves. Is he still a nomad? Does he still like, play tunes to earn a crust and things like no, that? Because I like that element there. just a blue-haired uh, anime RPG protagonist. I don't like that as much. I um, like him being a, a wandering nomad <laughs> playing tunes. Aye. Um, and then he meets up with them. But in, cause she, and she's after the Frozen Flame in this game as well. But then I got to the main tune and it was like... I was speaking to a random NPC and it was like, oh, have you heard about the Radical Dreamers? Like, they're out looking for the, the Frozen Flame. And I'm like, but, but we are the Radical Dreamers. Like, we've not even got to that point in the story yet. Like, I don't really... <laughs> so I still don't understand. I'm, I'm just thinking it's um, like in a Doctor Who approach to timelines and causality where I like, don't think about it too much. <laughs> Aye. I think if, if you're playing this game wanting a seat with Chrono Trigger, you'll possibly be, be disappointed. It's not that lore-heavy, as we're saying. It's, it's kind of implied... You get the odd wee, they talk about a mass immune for like a minute and things like that. Aye. If you're really into Chrono Trigger, stuff like that, you'll like. Kingdom of Pori, they talk about, it's implied that the place you are at the end um, is the ruins of the Kingdom of Zeal. Um, aye. But aye, it's subtle enough, and again, it, it doesn't kind of derail the plot, um, the, the story that it's trying to tell. It's cool. I think folk would enjoy it, like either way. Like it's a, it's a cool wee thing. As I say, the music's good, there's that, there's... Not hitting the heights of Chrono Trigger, but there's some tracks in it that I really like, and one of them actually forms the basis of the, the world map theme in, in Chrono Cross. The, the, the tune that basically plays when anything dramatic's happening, that wee theme. Aye. Um, that's pretty Oh, cool. I like that one. Uh, the battle theme in this is, is decent. Um, well, the battle themes... That, that, this is 
in common with Crown Trucker as well, where I feel like Yasunori Mitsuda doesn't write a battle theme in the way that everyone else does, or like the like Umatsu does, where it's like going to be a prog rock epic. Like, Aye. he brings in something a bit unexpected, like a bit of kind of Spanishy sounding guitar, or like a bit of blues or something. It's kind of, it's, it's different. Um, yeah, the music's good. The graphics are cool. It's the, you don't see a whole lot of graphics, but it's just the wee atmospheric, wee kind of scenes, dioramas and stuff. It has to the, the kind of atmosphere of the story. But it's a cool wee thing. Um, are you reckon the translation and the, the free version is pretty good? I mean, that may be worth getting. Like, I mean, the, I mean, I really enjoyed the version of, that I'm playing, but it's hard to justify, especially if you're not particularly interested in playing Chrono Cross because it was quite dear. The translation is cracker. It's like, if you look into it, it's really well regarded as well. It's like Mother 3 level. Oh, really? There's like, aye, it's, it's really cultural references and things like that have even been taken into account. Do you know what I mean? It's, aye, they, they did a good, a really good job with it as far as I can see. So yeah, one's for the, the chrono perverts or somebody who just likes <laughs> a good yarn, I would say. So, that brings us on to our final game of the episode. Uh, Mr. McCormick, why did you pick Spiral the Dragon for Andy Mack. So for some reason I've just assumed that everyone's played Spiral the Dragon. It didn't really occur to me that Andy being an N64 win wouldn't have had a go at it. I said on the episode before, but I always just kind of look back at Spiral the Dragon and smile. There's something about the atmosphere of it that just kind of appealed to me. There's little kind of nice wee details and a lot of charm to it. And it was like one of the first games, like 3D platformers I played. And I think I was just really captured by the world and the possibilities of what you could do in the PlayStation. Like, I think as a way, I almost felt like I was in Spyro the Dragon <laughs> playing it. I pretty much kind of devoured it. And yeah, I, I hadn't revisited it since that very first time playing it, really, because I played it in just, like, a, a wanner, like, over the course of a couple of weeks as a way. But yeah, I wanted to see if it still held up and if it um, still had the same charms that it had to be as a, a small child. One end game's always seen um, that were out in that book. I never really played. It's a cracking me 3D platformer. There's a few things that really impressed me about it. For one, the way Spyro looks, man, is cool as fuck. What a cool wee character. <laughs> He's a wee purple motherfucker. He's well textured. He moves about nice and fluid. I like his, he cut his jib, man. He's got a nice wee kind of expression on his face. He's a good mascot. And I dare say that I do prefer him, uh, the Bandicoot, after, after having a... A good look at him, you know. I do like him. I like his colour and all that. Nah, that that's wild. Aye, I knew you. I knew you were going to say that. My my boy Crash, come on. Aye, see, I think he's got a real contender here, and I I do, I do have some reasons for it um, today with the gameplay of the game as well. For instance, the way he controls, he controls it like he's um, a floppy thing, like he flops about. One thing that really impressed me today is that when you're controlling Spyro. It's a hideous time because you can control his camera using the shoulder buttons, which allows Aye. you to kind of um, see the whole open world rather than have a pure fucking stupid camera that just tells you you're looking one way and that's it. That's something that you kind of take for granted now, but wasn't much of a thing in those days. What What was so hard about fixing the camera on something's back and then letting you use the shoulder buttons to adjust it? That to me seems like it should have been a built-in feature with every one of these but in a lot of the earlier ones it wasn't I in 2D games you never had to think about the camera and there wasn't even a concept that it, it was a camera 
Aye. Until obviously um, Mario 64 came along and made it explicit a wee fucking dude floating on a cloud with a, a video camera. I like it too. It's hard, it's hard to kind of understand. Like, when you were playing 2D games, you had this added dimension was going to cause all this fucking trouble. <laughs> that's, that's deals with it very well. Spyro is a kind of unusual choice for a mascot platformer. He's not bipedal, which is one thing, which is quite interesting for a, a, a kind of cute animal, which means he has to animate in a different way. He kind of gallops about. I always like just charging about. <laughs> I used to do this. Just thing where you would you would charge and jump at the same time, and it just looked like Spyro was going mental, like jumping, bouncing around <laughs> the place. And I used to, that used to really entertain me as a child. But I, I think all these wee animations kind of they all kind of blend in with each other, and they all kind of uh, complement each other. It's quite it cool. Good. It's like transitions for like running to jumping to gliding and all that. And it's all very natural. Looks really good. Like when I think of PlayStation, I think of it. Things been a bit clunky. And a bit kind of jittery when things are moving about. Oh, here we go. Here comes a Nintendo fanboy. I can hear Cotter's brain working. <laughs> I, no, my brain's always working. <laughs> no, but I can I can actually see like how much effort they've put into this wee guy to the point where was there no some sort of story about when they were designing this game, some sort of fucking like um, guy made simulations for training pilots or something um, was involved in the creation of the game and the way that Spiral controls. That sounds like something you could have maybe done a bit of research into for the podcast, Andy. <laughs> so I, no, I remember reading like a NASA engineer. Um, basically, you know um, things that teach like, astronauts, you see it in films, but really, let's like, say... The, really, the like, Vomit Comet, the one that spins you in really fast to see if you can understand how to extract Really in-depth scientific nuance films like Armageddon. <laughs> well, Aye. They, they take like, people and put them in like simulations, simulators, Aye. and all that. Well, one of them things, like with flight controls, a guy that an engineer from NASA was brought on board apparently to, to help with the camera movement, which is, I mean, this guy should have got brought into fucking Sonic Team and all that. Apparently, it made like uh, the wings that they made they used to like, test the game. It made them look like, nauseous because the one they used to. Having this dynamic camera. Because they were spinning them around at 30 Gs to simulate the experience of going to space. <laughs> I'm going to slap a citation needed on this whole bit because it sounds fishy to me. Look up, Again, I've right? been sleep deprived and do the benefit of the doubt here. Kind of okay. Don't, don't, don't even. I, man, I'm telling you. Matt Whiting, his name was. Matt Whiting. Mark, Mark Whiting, NASA engineer who specialised in flight controls. Ironically, for sleep deprived Andy, Spyro was developed by a company called Insomniac. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story, by the way. I never made that up. Um, well, and one of the other things about the game's design as well that it was written in assembly. Which, McCormick, is that like as close to ones and zeros as you can get? Before it being ones and zeros. Pretty much, I you're telling the processor exactly what to do, and it's a way of getting the most bang for your buck for a system. But it also means that you can't port it to anything else because you're writing for that particular processor. It was more of a necessity in in the Mega Drive days, not so much now. So you're telling me somebody sat and wrote all the code for this while like Mrs. Harkins was getting cunts to sing hymns. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I'm going on about the design of the game is because the wee guy Spyro moves about in a completely different way to any other um, sort of PlayStation um, 3D platforming character. 
in, to a point where it's impressive and you can actually feel that it's a heat it's time when you're controlling. The things you can do is basically you can jump and glide much the way that Knuckles would, but in 3D you can charge and if you go down these certain things, uh, these wee arrows point in a certain direction, you do a supercharge, you basically go really fast and can not overload the enemies. And then you can breathe fire. And I think the breathing fire is kind of a stroke of genius because see if you had like a gun, for example, aiming it in 3D, early 3D, is an exercise of frustration, pointing your gun at the right target and shooting at it. We have breath attack, because it kind of spreads out, gives you a bit more leeway. So I think that's quite good. The glide gives you a bit more leeway in terms of platforming as well, mm-hmm. that you don't have to... You're really precise platforming, which again is quite difficult in 3D. Now that you mention it with the breath attack, it's no that I know this gets lumped in with the Bandicoot quite a lot. I don't think that they were the same developers, no. but they eventually came under a, a similar umbrella. I think that the people who made the remakes is the same team now. It's not a million miles away if it crashes spin. You don't need to be that accurate. You need to be in the vaguely the right area, so, but if you spin, you you get the hang. So in terms of movement, you can see some similarities um, in terms of his attacks and the same kind of wee crunch you get. But in terms of how the game plays, it's completely different. This is a an open world game, so you're in that sort of hub world with different worlds you can go to. Kind of like Mario sixty four jumping through paintings. Ah, what's that? A collectathon, I think they aye, call it, isn't it? Aye, it is at heart. Aye, what you do is you've got to collect these. Um, stone dragons who, unbelievably, there's got to be hundreds of dragons in this game, right? And every one of them got a unique name. Now, it really impressed me in the first hub world. When I got to the second hub world, I realised they were just, like, putting that in a random name generator and they didn't I in at the end. <laughs> Aye. But collecting the stone dragons was kind of its own reward because they would have a stupid wee voice Aye. and they would interact with you and maybe Aye. tell you a, a hint. Like, I found myself really charmed by the dragons. I always wanted to find the next one. Half of them have got like a, a wee bit of dialogue and it'll give you a hint or give you a bit of banter. Sometimes if you're lucky, you get Clancy Brown. Um, he does some of the voices in this game. The, well, the, the, the Kurgan. The Kurgan, aye, sometimes you get the Kurgan. <laughs> um, but also half of them just say, thank you for rescuing me. <laughs> they disappear. Aye. And the first um, sort of world, the artisans, that serves a sort of tutorial to game. So the dragons are like, if you press X, you might find yourself jumping and all that shit, you know. Thanks, Nevin, or whatever the fuck you is. <laughs> Pat Nevin. <laughs> <laughs> I remember playing through like Stonehill, which is one of the first ones you do. You can do them in any order you want, but but I was like, this game is fucking piss easy, man. It really pulls its punches in terms of the first few levels is just trying to get you grips through these things. It makes sense because, you know, it's a game for wins and it's also a lot of people when they've played a 3D platformer, so it takes it very easy. That first one, that Stonehill one, there's nothing to it. Oh, you just kind of go through a tunnel Aye. and jump up on top of a platform and that's you got all the dragons. But as the game gets on later, you, you get a lot of more inventive stuff, a lot more, more inventive baddies and a lot more challenge. Like, there's two dragons. I, I completed this. I got all 80 dragons and also beat the, the last boss in it. There's a shitload of dragons. Dragons Aye. are real. There's two that in particular that I remember that you hit a day some, like... Almost like speedrunner break the game type of moves to fucking actually reach the dragons, like doing weird things with supercharges and jumps and that. So like the game ramps up as well, and um, you encounter some mad, quite inventive baddies as well. This this is from my time I collected things, but uh, that sort of that gameplay was new at the time. That right. kind of idea was new at the time, so it was. 
but it, it does it has since aged quite a bit. Like th- you were too kind of focused on how well the game is designed in terms of its movement and its uh, the way it looks and the charming aspects of bodies and characters in the game to really care about the competitiveness of the, the gameplay loop. I think people like them. They've had a resurgence where people are like. They don't make these anymore, and they might have been flawed, but I like them. I'll get an idea of where my criticism comes, so let's just say you're making good progress, you're collecting loads of dragons, right? Um, it's time to go to the next hub world, um, and it tells you that you need another 40,000 treasure. But you've already had a shot at all your levels, so you need to go back into your levels and collect all your treasure, even though you've got all your dragons, essentially. Aye, depending on which level you're trying to get to, you might need a certain number of dragons, you might need a certain amount of treasure... And, you know, you might need these weird magic eggs that you collect. I think compared to like some of your rare collectathon games, this element is a wee bit underbaked for me because you're only collecting them to, to get to the next chunk of, of levels. There's not like a, a goal to, oh, you'll get something special if you get all the eggs or you'll, or you'll get something special if you get all the treasures. Like, it's really just like, oh, you need all of them or, or none of them. I'm going to shock Andy here and say that I think that an N64 game in the same vein is better than this. Aye. And it's Banjo-Kazooie. Aye. Yeah, I'm going to say that. I think they've got similar roadblocks in Banjo, but you rarely feel like you're retreading old ground. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Aye. There's so much to kind of explore, oh, and I think that the levels are maybe... To access the next thing, it's sort of lesser objectives almost. You can always kind of just get to the next one. It seems like an N64 game that's on the, the PlayStation. Aye. You always said that one of the reasons why N64 is so good at collectathons is because it's about to create textures and um, like big open box worlds. But I mean, this just proves that the PlayStation could do it too. But as you said, in terms of mixing up the gameplay loop in 2024, does it hold up? Maybe it's a bit monotonous for me, maybe not for somebody else. But, I mean, the game has so many other good aspects to it that it sort of doesn't matter, to be honest, because the game is fun. It's fun to control, it's fun to jump about, it's fun to fly. There's flying levels as well, we night into dreams bits when you've got to fly under. It's got that thing where we talked about it with Donkey Kong Country, you know, it's no dead, like, po-faced. It has a bit of fun at its own expense. Aye. This is full of that kind of cheeky humour. Aye, all the baddies are like big, like, fat women and uh, <laughs> crazy fucking stupid things that bump into you and try to run into you and you bump into them, knock them off the ledges and all that. And It's fun, you know, it's all, it's all a bit of fun. The Spyro looks like he's not part of this world. He looks as if he said... Like years and years of design put into him, and the world is kind of still catching up with me to a certain extent. <laughs> My favourite character is actually Sparks. I believe he's called these wee dragonfly pal. Ah, yeah. Who aye. serves as your kind of health bar in this game. I like see him. Aye. There's such a cool wee feature where, like, you're attacking enemies and baddies, but there's also a little wildlife in the world, like maybe like a wee sheep or a wee chicken or something, depending on what level you're in. And you attack them, and a wee butterfly comes out, and that's the butterfly's like your health power up. But the way it works is that the wee dragonfly chases it about for a bit, and then eventually just chomps down on it. Mm. Um, and it's a, a cool wee animation when he does it, and I just think it's just a nice wee detail. It looks cool. dead nice, and I look, I like how he when he goes different colours, like there's different wee sparkles coming off him, and that. Just that these wee little details that I like. And the better wee sidekicks like Navi, um, this is a good one. 
Uh, also, it's, it follows those conventions of 3D platformers where there's an ice level, fire level, grass level, etc, etc. Some of them are, are a bit more inventive, like the, the second hub world is called Peacekeeper's World, which is ironic because it's like at a war, there's like a Napoleonic sort of war going on. But if you beat the wee guys with cannons, the cannons stay about, and then you can actually use the cannons to like destroy obstacles and unlock right. kings in the world. And then there's another one later called the Magic Crafters World, and then there's like these wizards casting spells on the baddies to like make them change form and stuff aye, like that, aye, and that's aye, quite aye. cool as well. So yeah, as I say, you don't really get much of this inventiveness early in the game, but as it gets later, it starts kind of slowly reviewing some kind of more interesting ideas, which is cool. It's, 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 it's cool to play, it's fun, bright, um, pleasurable. This game is just a pure fun blast and an exercise in 3D platforming that kind of lacking these days, you don't get many of them these days. It's better than the likes of Donkey Kong 64, Conker's Bad Third Day, as McCormick found out, maybe doesn't they hold up that well, unless you just like the the kind of lame jokes like me and Andy do. <laughs> um, I, I think it maybe falls short of Mario 64 and Banjo, but it's up there with them. You've got to get it as Jews as. I'm with you, it didn't quite bust my Banjo, to be honest, but um, it's still up there. And, like, I like even these wee moves and that, like... His glide, his glide is cool, and at the time, this would have probably blew my mind that you can glide from uh, platform to platform. You can also use like, wee, your wee speed power up to make your glide go faster, to get to hard to reach places and stuff, so there's a lot going for it. And I like a bit of platforming, I really do, and this ticks the boxes, but as I said, the only thing is the gameplay loop can be found wanting, you can just be sitting saying, hold on, I've got to get 4,800 treasure, and I've already tried all the levels, and can I see it all, and then you get back in it and do it again, to progress to the wee balloon man to the next stage. I, I must say, well, I did complete the game this time around, and I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet here, it's quite easy, but I did not get all the treasure, because I was like, what's the point? Um, nah. <laughs> it was like, having to like, comb every level of the treasure, but getting the dragons... Isn't enough of motivation. I mean, you've I, seen all the levels. I mean, you've got through all the levels, and that was once I had all them done, I was like, "That's plenty now." I I will rarely feel the impetus to one hundred percent a game, unless I really like it and I can see a secret ending. Then maybe I'll get a go. Otherwise, nothing in me ever wants to go and find all the extra doodads. I'll play it on normal mode, and I'll get to the end if I like it enough. Well, the game is charming as fuck. The levels seem to... If we're talking about dragons in different contexts, I'd say that some of the levels drag in rather than, like, full-on dragon. My favourite dragon is the wee woman that answers the, the phone, the golden dragon. Dragon. <laughs> and some of these levels just weren't that. The woman that answers the phone at Highland Star, when you ask her for salt and chilli prawns, she never under... It's like a secret menu item. <laughs> She'll go like, what do you mean? Like, like a chicken ball, but a prawn in it? And you're like, no, they they do them. <laughs> I've, I've had them. <laughs> go, go and ask the guys in the kitchen and they'll make them. And, and then you have to go through this whole thing to get them. But it's always worth it. A secret item? Aye. Like, what chicken? 
I know that this is a classic, by the way. So I sit here and fucking slaughter its um, its gameplay loop, even though it's a bona fide classic. You can put a caveat on that that it's a good example of something that might not be for you. I think we'll wrap up on Spyro there. Spyro's a legend, although I've got one more thing I want to address. And if you can just take this out, if neither of you know off the top of your head, because we'll not look it up and get into a whole thing. Do, do either of you know why there is a giant Spyro statue in Ukraine? <laughs> Have you seen um, it? Is it? Did it used to be a statue of Karl Marx and someday went up for a laugh and just... No, it, they're very similar looking, so I can see why you get that mixed up. <laughs> you can you can just Google it for your own amusement, but you can just rip this out the episode because we'll not look it up now. Bye. That wraps us up nicely and brings us on to dishing out our games for next time. Andy, we'll start with yourself. What have you got for Mister McCormick? We're going to go N sixty four again, McCormick. You know I love it. I know you love it. When to give you ogre battle person of lovely calibre and the reason why I'm getting you that is because I know you're a wee bit of a buff for the old tactical RPG shit so this is one of them he is a person of lordly calibre as well I would say <laughs> that's true Andy for yourself I think you've got a mega drive blind spot right you seem like the type of person who's played all the big hitters but there's one I never really hear you talking about and that I've got the feeling that you might have played, but you've never really played that much. And that game is Strider. Ah, yo, Strider. Ah, you know, I did go through my head when you sent me a picture of that uh, Chinese man, Japanese man. (laughs) Well, it's because the Western boxer of Strider doesn't look like Strider. It's like a weird Jean-Claude Van Damme looking guy in a leotard holding like a, a sword that doesn't look like Strider's sword. I want to hear your full take on Strider. I want you to get an assessment and, and look into it. It is a wee pile classic. It many a wee pile across Western Scotland, to what I remember. It's an old Mega Drive game. It was around for the beginning. But aye, there you go. That's, that's you. Nice and simple. Uh, Mick, what have I got myself? So I'm going to give you a PS1 game, opinions of which have kind of oscillated for being it's shite to it's a hidden gem to it's shite again, and I want to settle this once and for all, because I don't remember myself. Um, it is Legend of Dragoon um, for the PS1. Ah, right, okay. I'll get a, I'll get a fair shake. I've never even heard of it, so... Again, the day with Sega Dragoon games. No. Oh. Nobody in Japan knows what a Dragoon is, basically. That's that's um, the takeaway. But they're not Polish. Yeah. They, they had nothing to do with dragons. Hopefully they gave the dragons a proper run out in this and, and I get to eat like pierogies and things like that. You get to play as Arta Boric. <laughs> Even better, I'll be making the sign across. I'm making the sign across right now, listeners. <laughs> but aye, all that's left to say for me is up the workers. Hard to go to the mega. I'll go faster, faster, I'm wet my fucking kit. <laughs> <laughs> Says like, I sleep well, insomniac Andy. Cheers. <laughs>